So we are continuing our study that we started last week in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, one of the first tasks is just to find Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it, it can be a, a bit of a challenge. You know, most folks can find Psalms. It's kind of, I don't know, my Bible, if I open my Bible, it, it, right to middle left, is, you're going to find Psalms. Uh, go to the right, you'll find Proverbs. And then you'll run into Ecclesiastes. If you're over in Isaiah, Jeremiah, go left. You'll, you'll or put it into your GPS. It'll come up. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, as we looked at last week, uh, it's the words of Solomon, the son of David. We dealt last week with the, the opening verses, and Ecclesiastes... Uh, the first time you look at it can seem uh, somewhat scattered. It can seem somewhat uh, kind of hard to follow, quite frankly. But, but there, there is a rhyme and there is a reason. Make mo no mistake. It's just not a scattered book. It's going somewhere. Um, what we want to do tonight is deal with the section from Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, down to chapter 2, verse 26. We've got a lot of turf to handle. Um, let's start in verse 12. And we're going to see the word preacher. Some translations have teacher. It's the Hebrew word koheleth. Uh, interesting term because uh, it can mean preacher. It can mean teacher. Uh, ekklesia is where we get the Greek word for um, church, is where we get the uh, term ecclesiastes. Uh, an ecclesia is an assembly. When we assemble as a church on Sundays, or whenever your church assembles, some churches now, a lot of them have churches on uh, services on Saturday. Uh, but whenever you get together, uh, the people of God are gathered. The people of God are assembled. There are two things going on in the, in the, in the church among believers. We, we are gathered, and then we are scattered. So we come on the weekend, whenever you come, and we gather as an assembly to hear the word from our pastors, from our preachers, from our teachers. Uh, uh, we are equipped with the word as we are gathered, and then we are scattered to apply the word to our lives and to share it with those that the Lord brings across our path. So in 112, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon was king over Israel in Jerusalem. His father, David, uh, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. In fact, David got the city of Jerusalem. It had been held by the Jebusites for hundreds of years, and it became the city of David. Um, and then he starts in. He's on a quest. He is on a journey. Uh, he says, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that had been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want to just take a step back. This is being written by Solomon. Uh, we, we ought to know some things about Solomon. Let me give you a quick overview of Solomon. Really, his biographical information is in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, we, we, are, we are first really introduced to Solomon uh, in, in 2 Samuel, really the, the last chapters of 2 Samuel. His father was David, his mother was Bathsheba. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba. If you didn't read it in the Bible, you saw the movie. You know that was David's great sin. He took Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, um, saw her as he was on his rooftop. He could see her. She could not see him. He saw her going into the bath, and the rest is history. Uh, as a result of their immorality, uh, David wound up having her husband. He tried to get the husband back so that he would be with his wife and because see, Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant. David tried to cover it. Uriah would not 
sleep with his wife because his men were on the battlefield, and if they couldn't be with their wives, he wasn't going to be with his. The man had honor. Uh, David gave orders to put him on the front lines, and he was killed. So not only is David an adulterer, now David's a murderer. Uh, David covers this up for about a year, and then Nathan the prophet comes to him, and the whole thing's exposed. When Bathsheba is pregnant, the child is born. The child lives for a number of days, and the child dies. Then later, David and Bathsheba have a son. His name is Solomon. That's Solomon's background. Kind of a rough beginning. Um, when you get into 1 Kings chapter 1 through 3, Solomon is on the throne. His father, David, has died. And in 1 Kings 1 through 3, um, right around the age of 20, he's going he's gonna to step up to the throne. That was the early years, 1 uh, Kings 1 through 3. Then you get into 1 Kings 4 through 10, and here's where Solomon hits his stride. Uh, and I mean, he hit his stride. This guy was a mover, and this guy was a shaker. This guy, uh, really, his primary task was to build the temple. David had set things up so that this temple, David wanted to build the temple. God said, you've got too much blood on your hands, so your son will build the temple. So what David did was David started, you know, emptying out all the Home Depots and Lowe's within miles and getting all the stuff together. And I mean, he was working the stuff so that when Solomon went to the throne, they had warehouses, they had the stuff, they had supply lines, they had it all set up. And uh, that was his task was to build this temple. Um, the Lord asked him, you can read this in the early chapters of 1 Kings, the Lord said, tell me what I can do. What would you like me to do? He asked God to give him wisdom. He didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for riches. Because God gave him, because he asked for wisdom, God said, I will also bless you in these other ways. Uh, what happened with Solomon is that for 40 years, uh, he had peace on every side. He didn't have to worry about battle. He didn't have to worry about foreign affairs. He didn't have to worry about financing armies. He was able to focus and he was able to build that temple. And, and when he finished the temple, then he began to build a house for himself, and he, he started all these other projects, as we'll see here in a minute. But, but these were the golden years. But even in the golden years of Solomon, um, well, let's jump, to, uh, let's jump to 1 Kings 11. In 1 Kings 11, what you're going to see is you're going to see the downfall of Solomon. Uh, in, in the Christian life, it's not how you start that counts, it's how you finish. Uh, Solomon had a great start, but um, he really hit a snag in 1 Kings 11. Uh, he hit a snag because what happened was he had ignored a, a command of God. My, my son Josh asked me, he must have been 10 years old, he, he asked me one night, he said, hey, Dad, let me ask you something. Wasn't Solomon the wisest man who ever lived? And I said, he was. He said, didn't he get all messed up, Dad? I said, he did. He said, how can that be? How can, you, how can a man that wise get all messed up? And what popped into my head uh, was, well, you know, Josh, there's a difference between wisdom and obedience. Just because you've been given a gift of wisdom, and Solomon had been given a gift of wisdom, that doesn't necessarily ensure that you're going to be obedient to the wisdom. Uh, interesting, isn't it? James said, let not many of you... Um, oh, no, James said, don't, don't just be hearers of the word, but be what? Doers. When, when I hear the word of God, that gives me wisdom. But the name of the game is just not to know the word. It's just not to put more stuff into my brain. The name of the game is to know the word and to obey the word. You see? Solomon had wisdom, but he began to fall off on obedience to the Word of God. Uh, you ever know something right? You, you got a decision, and you know what you ought to do. You know what the wise thing is, and guess what? You don't do it. Well, then you can relate to Solomon, and so can I. We've all done this. This is a major snare that happens in our lives. We know the right thing, and we don't do it. Sometimes guys will ask me, what does it mean to be a spiritual leader? A spiritual leader... I'll, in my mind, spiritual leadership is doing the next right thing. Not doing the next thing. Do the next right thing. 
That's leadership. That's spiritual leadership. That's what God-fearing men do. So in 1 Kings 11, all of a sudden, we see the downfall of Solomon. Why? Because he's ignored a command of God. Um, and that command was, I don't want you marrying foreign women. Well, he, he's not going to marry just one foreign woman. He's going to marry a bunch of them. His father, now his, David disobeyed this command. David, uh, David took multiple wives. David had somewhere between 8, 12, some scholars think maybe 14 wives. David shouldn't have done that. And you know how sons will come along and try to outdo their dads? So here comes Solomon. His dad had, what, 8, 12, 8, 8, 12 14 wives? I remember it was. So Solomon comes along. Yeah, take a shot how many wives Solomon had. 700 and 300 concubines. How'd you like to live in that house? <laughs> You talk about chaos, you talk about jealousy, you talk about rivalries, you talk about reality TV. You talk about a train wreck. Okay. Uh, it's important as we go into this tonight that we understand that Solomon had great wisdom, but Solomon deeply struggled with obeying the wisdom himself. Turn with me quickly to Deuteronomy 17, then we'll go back to Ecclesiastes. We've got to set this up. In Deuteronomy 17, there are instructions given to the king of Israel. When you enter the land which your Lord God has given to you, this is 1714, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. God says, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. He goes on and says, and this is very interesting, verse 16. He, and he's going to give some requirements. Moreover, he shall, not he shall not multiply horses for himself. What? He shall not multiply horses. Why not? The latest technological development of their day we're iron chariots. How do you pull an iron chariot? Horses. You'll see in the Old Testament the phrase, we will not trust in chariots, but in the Lord our God. We will not trust in chariots, but in the Lord our God. They were forbidden, the king was forbidden, forbidden to multiply horses. Why? Because that's what pulls chariot. I don't want you trusted in chariots. Yeah, but all the other nations have chariots. Yeah, but I want you trusted in me. Clear stipulation. 17. Here's another one. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else, watch this, his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. For himself. For himself. In other words, I'm going to put you in office. I don't want you to use the office to enrich yourselves. I'm going to leave that right there. I really... Okay. But let's do the, let's do the wife thing. <clears throat> Could that be any clearer? He shall not multiply wives for himself. Uh, David felt that he was exempt from that. And then along comes his boy, Solomon, and he really thinks he's exempt. Because he grew up in privilege and he was spoiled to begin with. Now look at verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. That's what happens oftentimes to men who get in political office. Their hearts are lifted up above the citizens that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his, in, in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. It's important that we see that. Early on, you get the sense, as you look at Solomon's life, and as you look at Ecclesiastes, 
and you look at the history of his life, when you do the overview, he, he, Solomon, I, I think you could say he started strong. The Lord appeared to him twice in, Second King, in, in, in First Kings. Then he starts building a temple. But there's a hint that something wrong because early on in First Kings, he finishes the temple for God. It takes seven years. Then in the next verse, it says he built a house for himself and it took 13 years. Now right there, you got a hint something's wrong. When you're going to build the temple for the Lord and then you build a temple for your home for yourself and the home for yourself takes twice as long as the temple for the living God who gives you life and breath and existence. It tells you something's going askew in his heart. It's not real, maybe not real obvious on the surface, but, but you see something's wrong in the heart. By the way, it was Solomon who said, and is it Proverbs 4 or 5? Can't remember the exact place. Uh, Read all of Proverbs, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, it's in four or five. Proverbs, under, uh, and Solomon had wisdom, and he, and he compiled many Proverbs, book of Proverbs. Guard your heart. Guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. You, 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 gotta, watch, you gotta watch your heart. I gotta watch my heart. We gotta watch over it carefully. Why? Because we all tend to wander. We all tend to wander. We all tend to forget the Lord. We all tend to drift. We just get you drift. If you're on vacation and you're at the beach somewhere and you get one of those little tubes and you're out there and you, know, you slap on the sunscreen and you're just, you know. I mean, you, you listen, I grew up in California out on the beaches and I mean, you can get out there and get past the waves and you're just kind of just laying, it's calm, it's docile. You can just nod off. You can wind up in Maui. And it's just a drift. You're just a drift. We've got to guard our hearts so we don't drift from the Word of God. This is why we put such an emphasis on the Bible, on the Scriptures. This is why my dad taught me, didn't tell me, I just saw it in his life. He'd get up in the morning, he'd get his coffee, he'd get his Bible. Uh, we used to say, we don't say anymore, that a man's uh, home is his castle. The man's home is his castle. That makes him a king. Well, what did the king of Israel do? He was to have his own copy of the law and read it all the days of his life. If I am the spiritual leader of my home, which I am, no less should be required of me. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Do not let me depart from thy commandments. I try to pray two things every day. I, I try to pray, Lord, do not let the foot of pride come upon me, because that's it's happened to me. You get a little puffed up, something good will happen, and you start thinking you're the one who did it, and you start taking credit, and you puff up like a toad. You ever do that? Happens to all of us. And then you, don't, you don't even realize you're doing it, because you, you're blind to your own pride. Let not the foot of pride come upon me today, Lord. It's happened to me so many times. Don't, don't let that happen again. The other thing I try to pray is do not let me wander from my commandments, because it's so easy to wander. It's so easy to drift, okay? So, this is what happened to Solomon, and he drifted, and he drifted big time. Uh, in 1 Kings 11, what happened was that he took these foreign wives, and these foreign wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Uh, kind of an overview, when he was young, most scholars think he wrote Song of Solomon. It, early midlife, he probably wrote Proverbs, all inspired by the Spirit of God, obviously, in Scripture. Most biblical scholars think at the end of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes. After he had drifted, let me tell you what happened to Solomon. You can read it for yourself in 1 Kings 11. Uh, yeah, he built the temple of the living God in Jerusalem, but these foreign wives all turned his heart. Just as Deuteronomy 17, 17 said, they turned his heart away from the living God, and he started building other temples to false God, and he started worshiping. He became an idol worshiper. Now, there's not a recorded point in the Scripture where it says that he repented from that idolatry. But as you read between the lines and you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, it kind of becomes clear that at some point he repented and turned back to the living God and realized how much of his life was filled, filled with futility and emptiness 
he went after the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of God. If it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to you, it can happen to me. Let's go to Ecclesiastes. Now, I want to break this down, how we're going to try and do this tonight. Uh, in verses, some of you guys love outlines. Let me give you an outline. The first, number one, we're going to look at, with Solomon, we're going to look at the emptiness of man's wisdom. That's chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The emptiness of man's wisdom. Secondly, we'll look at, with Solomon, the emptiness of pleasure and accomplishment. The emptiness of pleasure and accomplishments. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Then, thirdly, we'll look at the emptiness, this may surprise you, of a lifetime of hard work. And some of you young guys are saying, yeah, so I'm not going to work hard. No, that's not the point. So stay with me here. So third, we're going to look at the emptiness of a lifetime of hard work. That's chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, and we'll see why that's empty. And then finally, we'll see the solution to, em to emptiness. That would be our fourth point. The solution to emptiness, which is chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Let's go back to chapter 1 and to verse 12. We read the first couple of verses, but let's pick it up and let's start charging through this, okay? I, the preacher Solomon, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous... Now this is, we, we talked last week about some key phrases. Uh, we talked about under the sun, which is in the next verse. But here you have under the heaven under the heaven. Same concept as under the sun. Um, let's go to 14 and I'll comment on it. It is a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. There you go. And behold, all is vanity or all is emptiness or all is futility and striving after the wind. That's quite a statement. He made it earlier in the passage we looked at last week. This book is about the emptiness of life. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? All you did today, all the work you did, all you did for your family, all you did, all you did, it's empty, it's futile, it doesn't count. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is what we do under the sun. Uh, the phrase under the sun is not the wisdom of God, it's the wisdom of men. The wisdom of men. Uh, it is life that looks at life and the life on earth as the only life that there is. Um, it is the secular viewpoint. We live in a secular world. I, I, I think I say this every week because it's true. We live in a secular world. We live in a secular nation. Um, we have a secular education system in this country. And when I say that by secular, what I mean is the secular man, the secular wisdom, the secular education system, here's what they teach. They teach that this world is the only world that there is. That's secularism. That's all you have to remember. This is the only world. And you see, if this is the only world that there is, then in business, you can do whatever you want to do and undercut anybody, lie, cheat, steal, whatever you have to do to make a deal and to get ahead. It's okay, because this is the only world that there is. And at the end of life, by the way, there is no God. We're talking under the sun. There is no God over the sun. There is no God who made the sun, even though the Scripture says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, Psalm 19. Their voice is not heard, but their line has gone out throughout the earth. You look at the sun, you look at the stars, you look at the planets, they are speaking of the glory of God. Jesus is the creator. All things were made by him and for him and through him. He upholds all things by the word, 
of his power. The worlds were created through him and by him. The scriptures clearly say that Jesus created the world. Clearly say that. But see, life under the sun is the man who doesn't believe that, does not believe there is a God, does not believe there is anything other than this life. So you do whatever you have to do to get ahead. You lie, you cheat, you steal, because there is no God. There'll be no judgment. There'll be no accountability. You just do what you want, get as much as you can, and then you die. And you go out of existence. That's the secular mindset. There is not another world. Jesus said there is another world. So, Stephen Jay Gould, you may remember him, the Harvard paleontologist. He was on PBS a lot, wrote these books, did a lot of TV series, and he's one of the wise men of this world. He's now departed. He said, the human species has inhabited this planet for only 250,000 years or so. I don't know how he knows that, but he says it as though it's a fact. Um, this is roughly the last inch of the cosmic mile. The world fared perfectly well without us for all but the last moment of earthly time, and this fact makes our appearance look more like an accidental afterthought than the culmination of a prefigured plan. Hmm. This is the wisdom of the world. This is the wisdom under the sun. We, he goes on. Moreover, and more important, the pathways that have led to our evolution are quirky, improbable, unrepeatable, and utterly unpredictable. I'd say amen to that. He goes on. Human evolution is not random. It makes sense and can be explained after the fact. But wind back life's tape to the dawn of time and let it play again, and you will never get humans a second time. Okay, that's my comment. We are here because, get this, we are here, this guy's serious. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar thin anatomy that could transform in the legs for terrestrial creatures because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far by hook and by crook, we may yearn for a higher answer, ah, but none exist. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom and our own ethical sense. There is no other way. This, this guy is a sage. This is a man of wisdom. You, you would spend 80 grand a year to send your kids to Harvard to listen to this guy. Okay, this is important that we get. This is what Solomon is talking about when he's talking about wisdom in Ecclesiastes that's under the sun. You can't miss this. If you miss it, you miss the whole thing. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. This is what he's talking about. Uh, he's going to go on and talk about wisdom. He's going to go on and talk about madness and folly in verse 17. I'll get to that in a minute. But I don't want to forget to read this. Uh, some more on this wisdom of the world under the sun. Philip Ryken says this. Um, when we get to the term madness and folly, he, he said that he was using this the way it's usually used in the Old Testament to refer to the mad foolishness, watch this, of living in disobedience to God. When he's going to talk about wisdom and madness and folly, he's talking about He's talking about the foolishness of living in disobedience to God, which is exactly what happened to Solomon. He knew God was there. God appeared to him twice, and then he decided to go his own way and madly, insanely live in disobedience on purpose 
against God. Okay. Now let's go on. 14. I have seen all the works which have been done. There it is again, under the sun. And behold, all this emptiness, vanity, and striving after the wind. If, if, if what this Harvard guy says, and what we, if that's true, it, all, it, it is all empty. 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Um, in 13, he says, It is a grievous task which has been given to the sons of men. Do you see that? It's a grievous task that's been given to the sons of men. Literally, that's, that has been given to the sons of Adam. Let me tell you why that's important. When God created Adam, and this really didn't happen, but it's a, nice, it's a nice myth. It did happen. When you die, if you know Christ is your Savior, when you die and go to heaven, you will meet Adam and you will meet Eve. The, the cool, hip thing is, there was no Adam and Eve. There was no garden. There are Christian schools. There are debates among, quote-unquote, evangelical Christians. There's a book out called The Four Views of Adam. The, the, the hip view among evangelicals is that Adam didn't exist. But you got a problem because in Romans 5, basically Jesus came by his blood and by his sacrifice on the cross to undo the work of the original Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. If Adam didn't exist, there was no reason for Jesus to come and live a sinless life and go to the cross and be buried and rise on the third day. It didn't need to happen. Jesus believed in a literal historical Adam. Now, why is that important? Why, why, is, uh, why does he say uh, it's a grievous task which has been given to the sons of men to be afflicted with, to the sons of Adam? Adam was born not in sin. He was born in perfect innocence, in a perfect environment, in a perf per perfect relationship with God. He walked and talked with God in the garden. But at a certain point, the enemy came in, tempted his wife. Then, like a little wuss, he follows her instead of giving her leadership. They both sin. And now it's a broken, fallen world. They clothe themselves because they realize they're naked and they're banished from the garden. The world's been broken ever since. And since then, by the way, here's kind of a wild concept. The entire human race existed in the garden, in the loins of Adam. You ever think about that? Similarly, we were all there, the entire human race. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. All of the races, all of the human beings, for the rest of history, all were inside the Adam. And when sin hit the garden, and when, and when sin, when the fall came, everything was broken and everything was affected by sin. That's why from then on, we're born with sin natures. Is this wild stuff or what? You don't get this on ESPN. But see, it explains all kinds of stuff, doesn't it? It explains our hearts. Okay. Now, it also explains, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked? There, there's always something in your life that will be crooked. Number one, we're born crooked. We're born screwed up. Years ago, there was that book, famous book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm telling you, one day I'm going to write a book called I'm Screwed Up, You're Screwed Up. <laughs> Because we're all born in sin. You're selfish. I'm selfish. We're all selfish. That's why I need a Savior. That's why I, redeem, I need a Redeemer who can make me new, who can give me a new heart. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new in Christ. Uh, I'm crooked. My life is crooked. There are things in your life that you wish were not there that you cannot fix. In, in, later in Ecclesiastes 7, he's going to say, Consider the work of God, for who can straighten what he has bent? In, in the day of prosperity, be glad, be thankful. Thank you, Lord. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. There are things in our lives that are crooked, and try as you may and do whatever you can do, you cannot fix it. Only the living God can fix it. It might be relational, it might be something in your heart, it might be emotional, it might be business, it might be your career, you're stuck, you're laid off, you can't get a job. It's in God's hands. He goes on and he says, 
and, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Sometimes we look at our lives and we say, it just doesn't add up. That's because you can't count it. My life won't balance. You know, if you work hard enough on your QuickBooks, you can get it to balance. You can't get your life to balance apart from him. Making sense? And so we get frustrated, and, we, and this isn't making sense, and I don't get what's going on in my life. You're never going to get it if you're under the sun. If you don't look to the living Christ. Um, see, this is what, for some reason, Solomon wanted to explore. He wanted to explore this worldly wisdom under the sun. Uh, Riken goes on and says, When we consider the life of Solomon, it is hard not to think that he studied folly a little too well. That's true. He said, I, I want to say, basically, let, let me tell you what you've got going on in verses, as I read verses 12 to 18. What's happening, it's like Solomon's trying to get a PhD in philosophy. He's trying to get a PhD at Harvard under Gould. Um, he's talking about a wisdom, but this wisdom he's talking about has nothing to do with the fear of the Lord. Now, he knew about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, you want to go to the left. See, the wisdom he's talking about here, it leaves God out. In Proverbs 1.7, Solomon said, the fear of the Lord, watch this, is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, it's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But watch this, fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to hear it. This isn't politically correct, but I think it's true. In my opinion, there are more fools per square inch on a university campus than anywhere else on the face of the earth. And I'm not talking about the students. I'm talking about those with tenure, those with advanced degrees, from the very best of schools. Because the word of God says, Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why are they fools? Because they despise wisdom and instruction. In, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the wisdom that the world mocks. In 1 Corinthians 1, how's my time? Not good. But I will tell you this, you want wisdom? 1 Corinthians 1.30 Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. You want wisdom? You come to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I thank you that you died for my sin. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. Would you lead me? Would you show me how to live life? I've screwed it up. I've missed it up. We've all done that. He won't cast you out. He won't turn you aside. He'll embrace you. He'll give you life. He'll give you a new hope. He'll give you a new heart. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. That's the gospel. If you want wisdom, you go to Christ. He made the world. He spoke it into existence. He's coming back. He runs the world. He upholds all things by the word of his power. You a little confused what's going on in this country? He planned what's going on in this country. He raises up nations. He sets them down. Oh, there's these great leaders. He blows on them and they wither, Isaiah 40. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. That's also Isaiah 40. It's also Daniel 2. He's running this show. He owns it. <laughs> yeah, hoorah. That's wisdom. And he's got his eye on me and my little family and my little stuff and my little life. And he gives me meaning. And he gives me joy. And I don't have to be fearful. And I don't have to be freaked out. Because he gives a peace that you can't find in the world. Solomon got himself in trouble by going after the wisdom of the world. In Psalm 119.10, it says... I will seek you with my whole heart. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. 
See, he quit seeking the Lord with his whole heart. You know, it's interesting in Ecclesiastes when he's talking about under the sun, under the sun, and he's going to start on this quest. I, you know, I'm going to search. You never hear that he prayed to God about embarking on this. You never see that he consulted the scripture. He just did it. You ever do that? You ever get ahead of the Lord? Oh, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do this. I'm gonna... We've all done that. And uh, that's when you wind up in a ditch. You see, we've all, every guy in this room has done that. Uh, let's now go to chapter 2. Um, in, in verses 1 through 17, and, and what, what's, by the way, what's his pronouncement on the philosophy of the world there in 12 through 18? Uh, look at 18. Uh, I don't think I read 17 and 18, but he says, I set my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. That's disobedience to God. This is also striving after the wind because in much wisdom, worldly wisdom, there's much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Interesting how many of the wise men of the world take their own lives. You go into Barnes and Noble, the ones that are still existing, that are still there, and there's some left. But they have, have you ever noticed, they have these paintings of artists on the wall? You'll see Virginia Woolf. Oh, the great literary genius. You know what she did, Virginia Woolf? She put rocks in her coat, big coat, you know, one of those heavy, heavy coats, all kinds of pockets, put rocks, walked into a river and drowned herself. All her wisdom. Uh, I read a quote by her husband who was a literary genius, worked in the publishing. He, he said, at the end of my life, I counted up all the hours that I spent in publishing and doing this and this. You know, countless thousands, countless thousands and thousands of hours. I, I, I looked at that. It's all been meaningless. It's been utterly empty. Wow. That's not just Solomon. It's their own testimony. Uh, you walk into Barnes & Noble, you'll see Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was born in Wheaton, Illinois, to a godly Christian family. He completely dispensed of the scriptures and went off on his own journey, just like Solomon, and took a shotgun and ended his life. One of the greats, by the world's standards. Tragic. Uh, chapter 2. What's going to happen in chapter 2 now? He's going to show the emptiness of pleasure and accomplishments. Now, let's just dive into this. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, listen, hey guys, I think it's Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there is pleasures forever. That's life over the sun. That's like knowing the Son, S-O-N. You see? You understand when you come to know Christ, has he been good to you? Has he taken care of you? Has he provided for you? Is there stuff in your life that you wish you had that your friends have? Yeah. And sometimes you think, I don't know why I don't have that, because it's a good thing and they have it. And that's right, it's a good thing and they do have it. But I don't have it. That's because right now it's not good for you. Aren't there times with your own kids... There'd be something you'd like to give to your kids and you plan on giving to your kids that would be good for them, but you don't give it to them right now because they can't handle it right now? God does that with us. Oh, my friends have all of this. It's a good thing. I don't have it. That's because it's not good for you yet. But at the right time, he'll give you that good thing and you can enjoy it. See, our enjoyment, our happiness, our stability, our peace comes from knowing God. You will make known to me the path of life. Are you stuck in life? You're not sure what's going on right now? You will make known to me the path of life in his way, in his time. So wait. Keep doing the work that he's given you to do and wait for him to make it clear. It might be two weeks, it might be two years, but you wait on him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to those who wait and hope for his loving kindness. Don't you move until he clear. Don't you get into sin. Don't get ahead of him just because you're sick and tired of waiting. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So you wait. Lead me. Is there that's, it doesn't mean you're passive. You do what you're supposed to do. But if you're unsure about something, don't move ahead if you've got an emergency brake on. Wait till he releases the emergency brake, and then you go, knowing that he's leading. i got to shut up and read the text. 
I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. God's all about pleasure. God invented pleasure. Did you, have you ever thought of that? You get pleasure from sitting around a table, having good food? Where'd the food come from? God invented it. You see? The good things in life, they're gifts from God. Uh, I said, I will test you with pleasure. Not from God's perspective, from under the world's perspective. So enjoy yourself. Behold, it was too, it, this was emptiness. It was futility. I said of laughter, it's madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly, madness, that's disobedience to God until I could see what good there is for the sons of men, there it is again, sons of Adam, to do under heaven the few years of their lives. So in other words, I'm going to seek pleasure as those in the world who don't know Christ seek pleasure. That's what he was doing. Okay? So he's after pleasure apart from God. Then you get into verse 4. Uh, you get into kind of his accomplishments and his projects. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. He didn't build a house, he built houses. Uh, I planted vineyards for myself. It's always interesting, you see guys who will make a lot of money, and what are they going to do? Oh, they're going to buy some land and plant a vineyard. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to have a winery. Hey, Solomon could have bought France. That's how much money he had. All of his cups that he drank from were gold, every single one of them. Silver was worthless in his day because he had so much silver. This guy was unbelievably wealthy, staggeringly wealthy. So what did he do? I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks. Not like garden in your you know, little backyard in your condo. I mean, you're talking Central Park gardens. You're talking Central Park parks. You're talking uh, Callaway Gardens. You're talking Cypress Gardens in Florida. You're talking about magnificent, unbelievable, the gardens you see in the English estates. He surpassed them all. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Solomon was the only king of Israel who had ships that went around the world bringing in exotic plants, animals, and trees, and he planted them in Israel. The only one who ever did it. I think it was Jehoshaphat that tried, and God... Uh, uh, wrecked the boat. So Solomon was the only one who ever did it. I made ponds of water for myself, which the irrigated forest of growing trees. All those exotic trees, he made ponds of water. He had the irrigation system on the southeast side of Jerusalem, as I recall. Uh, this, this guy's going after it. Not only did he build the temple, then build a house, now he's going after it. See, he got, he, he, he just got, uh, he got intoxicated with, with, with building. He got intoxicated with projects. Now, is there anything wrong with building? Anything wrong with, you know, being productive with your skills and gifts? No. Providing for your family? No. No, there's not. But when it's out of control, it can become a drug like anything else. Can it not? Uh, seven, I bought male and female sleeves. I had home-born home slaves. Uh, I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I saw a thing in Architectural Digest. I was in the waiting room with some doctor, and I'm reading it. On the cover was Ted Turner's ranch in New Mexico. And uh, it talked about all his ranches. But this one in New Mexico, and you're looking at the page, you go, my God, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a nut. He spends three days a year there. Three days a year. Because he's got all these other, he's got more buffalo than anybody else in the world. Why do you keep moving? Why, why, why only three days? Well, you're there three days and you're looking for some other thrill because this doesn't cut it. Well, let's go up to Colorado. Let's go to Montana. Let's keep moving around, man. Why? Um, eight, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers. He couldn't buy the CD, so he bought the group. <laughs> He just bought them. Watch this. And the pleasures of men, many concubines. He couldn't go online and look at women, so he just had 300 concubines. 700 wives. 300 concubines. This sucker was taking Cialis and Viagra, or whatever the Old Testament equivalents were. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. He became so great, the Queen of Sheba comes. And visits him. 
to hear of his wisdom and to see his stuff. And she says, the half was not told to me. She was absolutely overwhelmed. And she was fabulously wealthy. Then I increased uh, 10. Here, here you go. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Boy, there's a statement. How'd you like to try that for a day? He did it every day of his life. All that my eyes refused me, I did not refuse them. You see that car? I'll take it. You see that watch? I'll take it. I got 19 watches. I'll take that one. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. That might be, must be quite a life. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Women, drink, song, anything. It's, it's, it's drugs, sex, and rock and roll for this boy. He's just living the good life under the sun. For my heart was pleased because of my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was emptiness. What's it like to have anything you want? It's empty. Well, how empty is it? Uh, look at verse 17. So I hated my life. Uh, look at verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I hated it. Twice he hates his life. And he can have anything he wants. All right. So now he's done with pleasure. And now he jumps to wisdom. Uh, look at verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. That's life under the sun. Don't forget that. It's life without God. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what he has already done? So who, what's, is anyone, what, what's the next king going to do? All they can try and do is outbuild the previous king. All they can try to do is build a higher wall or more houses, okay? That's futility. Look at 13. I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. It's better to be a wise man, is it not, than a foolish man. So the wise man of Harvard is more esteemed than a foolish guy that just wastes his life and never works a day of his life. Yeah, that's true. Okay. The wise man's eyes are in his head. The fool walks in darkness. Watch this. Yet I know that one fate befalls them both. And what fate is that? Death. You can never get so smart under the sun that you can figure out how to beat death. It's going to get you. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, well, this too is empty. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. How many of you guys have ever heard of Jack Higgins? Let me see your hand. I, I, I see less than 10 hands. So Jack Higgins in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, big time uh, British novelist, writes some pretty good uh, counterintelligence stuff, writes about uh, British counterintelligence in Nazi Germany, uh, the eagle has landed, writes some pretty good novels, okay? He influenced Tom Clancy. In fact, when they republished, if Higgins, I think he's still alive, but he's late 80s maybe. Uh, but world-famous author, most guys in here have never heard of the guy. What's happened to him? He's not remembered. Okay, now here's my point. So Tom Clancy who we all know Tom Clancy, he's the latest, greatest rage, and he just recently passed away. When they republished all of Higgins' uh, mysteries, on the cover, they put a quote from Tom Clancy. Clancy said, Jack Higgins is the master. Sells a lot of books for Higgins. Okay? Here's what Higgins said. He was interviewed towards, you know, at some point not too long ago, and someone asked him, uh, about his incredible success and said, what is it now that you know that you wished you had have known when you were a young man? Higgins said, I wish I had known that when you get to the top, there is nothing there. <laughs> That's the guy who made it. Millions and millions of books, millions and millions, millions, millions and millions of dollars. He had it all. Uh, let's jump to uh, 218 to 23. This is the emptiness of a lifetime of hard work. You say, hey, that's discouraging. I'm, I'm trying to work hard. I'm trying to provide for my family. Well, you should. 
Uh, Colossians 3, whatever you do, this is life with the Son of God. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. See? So whatever you do, you're uh, using your gifts that God gave you. God has given you a sphere of influence in the community. Some guys are plumbers. Some guys are architects. Some guys repair cars. Some guys, all work is important. You see? All work is significant. You don't think that? You wait till you have a toothache at 3 in the morning. You're going to call that dentist, and you're going to love your dentist. You see? Stuff we never think about suddenly is important. You know, and God puts us, he assigns us to our post. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, Paul said. Okay. So work is important. Work is a gift from God. Okay. But, you say, what do you mean? The emptiness of a lifetime of hard work. Let's read it. 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. Why? Why would you hate it? I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Amazing how many wise men raise fools. Solomon raised one called Rehoboam. David kept the 12 tribes together. Solomon, because of his unbelief, 1 Kings 11, God says, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands, but I won't do it to you, I'll do it to your son. And within about 17, in a few days of being king, you know what happens? His son Rehoboam splits the nation and 10 tribes go north and start their own nation. Okay. Who knows whether it will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely. In other words, you may act wisely and you've accumulated, you've planned, you've saved and all that. You don't know who's going to, you don't know who's going to get it. You don't know what they're going to do with it. You know what's amazing to me? Harvard... Harvard was started as a school to minister, to, to train ministers for the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciple men around the world. Within 50 years, they went liberal. So a group of guys said, well, we're going to start a school that's going to hold to the word of God, and we're going to believe in the word of God, and they called that Yale. And that lasted for about 50 years. And then they went liberal and departed from the gospel. And then another group of guys in New Jersey said, well, we're going to start a school. And we're going to hold it, and that was called Princeton. And on down, 11 out, I think it's 11 out of the 12 Ivy League schools all started this uh, universities to train men for the propagation of the gospel. You know, my point is this. You realize how many Ivy League schools, their endowments have been built on the money of Christian people who love Jesus Christ and gave to the kingdom? Now Listen. Lord leads you to give to a Christian institution or a Christian college, give it. The Lord oversees all this stuff. I'm just saying, you have no control of where it's going. You see? So don't put your hope in it. You're, you're, as believers, we're going to a judgment of rewards. Not a judgment, not a, not a, if your name's in the Lamb's Oak of Life, you don't go to the white throne judgment. You won't be judged for sin. Jesus took your sin. But there are rewards we know nothing about that will last forever. This is his point, uh, 21. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, this too is emptiness and a great evil. You don't know what they're going to do with it, so don't love it. Finally, in 24, he gets his solution. If it's all empty, should I not work? No, of course you should work. Is my life futile? It's futile if it's just under the sun. Look at this. 24. Here's the solution. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen. Watch this. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. See, now this is life over the sun by the one who made the sun. This is Psalm 16:11. In thy presence is fullness. Uh, thou will make known to me the path of life. It's Psalm 127, 128. There's nothing better. Uh, 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 unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. You can build a house, you can build a family, but if you're not building on the truth of Jesus Christ, it's vanity and it's empty. You see? I think it doesn't matter how big, small house, doesn't matter. Jesus isn't in it, it's empty. 
because there's no eternal life in it. There's no forgiveness of sin in it. But when Jesus is in it, oh my gosh, he blesses to the thousandth generation. That's what he does. So there's nothing better than your wife to be like an olive plant and then 128. You, you're all sitting around eating the table, drinking. You got your kids. You're eating. You're, you know, you're throwing turkey breast. It's great. You got your grandkids. That's as good as it gets. Because it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Nothing better than to eat and drink and tell himself his labor is good. This I've also seen that it's from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? There is no enjoyment without him. That last, that last. For to the person who is good in his sight. Oh, I, you got to watch this. Some translations say, for to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Those things are from God to the person who is pleasing in his sight. By the way, how do you please God? Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is, watch this, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Not the world, him. He's a rewarder. The end of Ecclesiastes, he talks about one shepherd. Who's the one shepherd? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> the Savior, the Redeemer, who's your provider, who's your sovereign defender, who is your sovereign keeper, who contains your life, who gives you life and breath. Are you stuck? Are you not sure what to do? Psalm 57, 2. I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. One of the old Puritan pastors translated that. I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He rendered it this way. I will cry to God most high. Watch this. To God who is the transactor of all my affairs. He's in charge of your life. He will send from heaven to save me. He knows your affairs. He knows what's going on. He's a great savior. Say, I'm not sure what to do. He'll make it clear. Steve, I'm kind of struggling. I'm staying up at night. I'm not sleeping because uh, well, because you're anxious and you're not sure God will come through. Guess what? He's going to come through in his way and his time. Just live the next 12 hours. He'll get you through. That's Matthew 6. That's what Jesus said. For a person who is pleasing in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. Ray Stedman said this, and I agree with him, and it's my experience. Ray Stedman said as he tra traveled the country, he'd go to Christian conference grounds. And he's always amazed the story behind some of these Christian conference grounds. If you go to the Navigators Conference Center in Glen Erie, they have a castle in Colorado Springs. It's an amazing place. It was built by one of the railroad tycoons in the late 1800s. He built it, brought in all this stuff from Europe. This place is unbelievable. Acreage, exotic game, all this incredible castle. But for his wife, she lived there three weeks and then left. He never, he never slept there again in his whole life. Over the years, it was passed on, passed on, passed on. And I think in the early 1950s, the Navigator Ministry bought it. And hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people had been trained in the gospel of Jesus Christ and sent out all over the world. Why? Because sinners gathered and collected and gave it to the people of God. Same thing, Arrowhead Springs. Uh, that beautiful, incredible hotel complex, just 45 minutes, east, now it's an hour and 45 minutes from L.A., from Beverly Hills. Elizabeth Taylor, every time she'd get married and have a honeymoon, she'd go up there. She was up there every weekend. <laughs> all the movie stars, hot springs, you go down in the caverns, there's hot springs, there's incredible pools, all that, and then it was passed around and it was, it was empty. Campus Crusade for Christ bought it. Hundreds of thousands of people have been trained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's running the show, guys. Malcolm Muggeridge. Quote from him and we're done. Great uh, intellectual. Was on the left in, in Britain. A satirist, political critic. Came to know Christ later in life. He said this. I may, I suppose, regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can 
fairly easily earn enough money to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the Internal Revenue Service. That success, furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of friendly diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. Well, that's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by millions. Add them all up together, and they are nothing, less than nothing. Indeed, a positive impediment measured against one drop of that living water that Jesus Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. That's life over the sun with the one who made the sun, who gives pleasure, who gives joy who gives wisdom to us today who ask for it. Our Father, we thank you for this truth. Help us to seek you. Help us to open our Bibles. We spend so much time listening to the news and the foolishness of men, and we forget your wisdom. Help us to remedy that beginning tomorrow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.